What is up everyone, Ryan Ray here. Welcome to The War Room once again. And today we have on Lauren Southern. But first, let's pay them bills by going to Bluehost. Getting your website set up right there. RyanRaySenior.com slash hosting. Do it. Send me a receipt saying that you use my link. I'll give you free publicity right here on this podcast. Okay, today we got on Controversial? Perhaps, or at least at one time was, figure um, Lauren Southern. And I saw she kind of had a setting the record straight video. I wanted to reach out and kind of hear her side of the story and had a very, I thought, interesting conversation. I will say this, that there are a little bit of uh, audio problems with this. It's not her fault or my fault. It's the platform that I was using. I would no longer be using. Um, it, I've tried it again, but it just sometimes works this way. So anyways, uh, I had a friend of mine. Thank you to Mr. Hansen who cleaned this up some, but there is some popping and whatnot, so bear with us. Apologies. Uh, with that being said, let's get to Lauren Southern. Lauren, welcome to the War Room. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So let me give a little bit of background here. Um, a few weeks ago, I had on uh, Destiny, and so I was kind of doing some show prep before I had him on, and he was reviewing your video, uh, the, the Whole Truth, I think it was called, or The Whole Story. Um, and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. And, and I realized I haven't heard from you in some time. So maybe unpack for those who haven't seen, um, that's a three hour video. I think you said, so it's, a th- <laughs> it's a little, it's, you can't get it at all, but maybe why that video, um, maybe why people haven't heard from you as much, um, take a few minutes to kind of unpack all that and we'll go from there. Yeah. So the first part, the reason I made that video was because in 2019, I just kind of disappeared off the map after being a large international figure, not to toot my own horn here. And I didn't give people much of an explanation. And the reason I didn't give them much of an explanation is because I was essentially being held politically hostage by the Australian government who had told me if I speak about politics, I won't be able to see my family in Australia. I won't be able to travel. And so I gave it up and I couldn't talk about it for a year. I couldn't mention anything that was going on if I wanted to be able to visit my family. And uh, after a year, when I was on a more substantial visa, I was able to come back to politics. But I had experienced so many negative, you know, relationship issues and watching fraudulent behavior, mismanagement within the conservative movement that I was a part of before that became far more amplified to me when I took a step back and looked at it from outside the fishbowl away from politics, not in the public eye, particularly when I had taken a step back due to the Australian government's um, fascist tactics of keeping me out of the country for my political opinions. Um, A lot of the conservatives and political actors that I used to work with uh, used the opportunity of my stepping away to slander my name, spread lies about me for clicks. And it was a very humbling experience, a very Um, educational experience and why tribalism will always turn bad, why you can't just trust people because they're the exact same political opinion as you, where duty, truth, and decency come should come to the forefront and be the most important part of your relationships, friendships, and business partnerships rather than political opinion. And these are all hard lessons that I had to learn through many, many experiences in my politics. And people hadn't heard about it from me for a while, first because of the Australia issue. And then secondly, because it took a long time for me to process personally. I I put a lot of my heart and soul into fighting 
for what I believe to be the truth, fighting for conservatism, fighting for this cause. And to see a lot of it turn around and hurt me, stab me in the back was something that I didn't even want to admit to myself for a long, long time until just recently. And yeah, it felt really good to talk about it. But that's essentially the brief spark notes of my whole truth three hour video. Okay, so we'll link to that at the show notes. So everyone can go check that out or go to your YouTube pages there. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's let's unpack this a little bit because this is one of the things that I thought would be interesting for me to hear your perspective on. I, I, I would like to be a conservative, um, but I can't because I don't find conservatives to actually know what they're trying to conserve, what their agenda mm. is. They partner with people who... And I want to be careful here. I'll say this because I'm not, I can't say this right. But they, they seem if if insert big name here shows conservative tendencies instead of saying, hey, we agree on three issues. They want to kind of bring them into a conservative fold without thinking through all of the other implications. So am I right in that? Am I wrong in that? I'm being too hard on conservatives. Um, and I think this is tied. You can see this well with maybe the Trump movement where, um, you know, Trump obviously worked well for conservatives in some areas. But a lot of what he did or how he acts is not how conservatives have endorsed people acting historically. So thoughts on that? Yeah. So there is a problem with just general politics today where it's like, you can't just have your opinions and have them fall where they will on the political spectrum. And then, you know, if a certain amount fall more on one side versus the other, well, that's, you know, your politics, you kind of have to align with every, Oh, did I lose you, bud? Did I lose you? Oh, Sorry, I just no, saw I'll your just, video. I'll, I'll just there. slide the, the video. For okay, you. all right. Um, yeah, so you, you kind of have to align with every single aspect of conservative politics. Otherwise, you're a traitor. You'll be called out. You'll be excommunicated. They really want you to bend the knee on every single issue. You can't really have a, a mind of your own in a lot of these political movements because it's it's pretty vicious out there, whether it be progressive movements or far-right movements, conservative movements. And There is a level of hypocrisy that people will allow for if it's their own team, whether it be, you know, Trump's grab him by the pussy comment, right? That's certainly not something that would have been in a more traditional conservative movement. If you remember when Clinton was uh, um, on the outs due to the Monica Lewinsky stuff, every conservative and their mother was uh, screaming from the hilltops that this is not the way a man should behave in the office of the presidency. This isn't a way he should talk. Obviously, it's not apples to... um, Apple's comparison here with uh, the grabber by the pussy comment and what Clinton did. But the point being, conservatives will absolutely let a lot slide when it's their own side doing it. And this is something that I believe progressives and the left started. You know, if a conservative says something offensive or um, the conservatives have a small little protest or something, it's the end of the world, January 6th, right? It's an insurrection and it's the darkest day in American history. But when BLM burned down cities for a year, Uh, Well, you know, they were frustrated and angry and had a right to do that. So this hypocrisy exists on both sides. And it's it's an unfortunate aspect of what our political discourse has dwindled to. It's it's hardly a conversation at all anymore. It's just mindless lemmings uh, spouting off talking points. And that goes for both the listeners and the people at the very top (laughs) talking about it. It's really sad. It's really sad. There's kind of a formula that you have to stick to if you want to make money in this industry. And it's... um, going to be a set list of talking points you can put on a stack of cue cards and you just say that for the rest of your life and you'll be rolling in dough by some sort of progressive organization or Republican super PAC. Yeah, it's funny because I was writing a political geopolitical newsletter for about a year and I stopped writing it because 
I would either get called like a far right extremist or a far left progressive. And I'm like, and I, 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 to be clear, I'm not trying to identify as a centrist either. I'm not saying that I'm just, um, but with libertarian leanings, you have positions that are going to be kind of um, more conservative at this time and more left at this time, depending on what it is. But it, it just got to be where it was, even my, the people that are critiquing me wouldn't make substantive points normally. It was just, oh, hey, you're an idiot, or hey, this, and I, I'm an idiot to be clear, so that's fine. But but there wasn't actually a debate going on of the point mm-hmm. at hand. And it was quite frustrating because, you know, there are things I'm wrong about, but, I, you know, at least engage me on the merit of the argument. And um, being that you've kind of come from this, this world of, um, you know, video and, and, and engaging people, do you find that there are honest actors in the mainstream or do you have to kind of get to the niche to, to really have these discussions? Is anyone having these discussions? Well, this is what I think is really interesting is I actually think a lot of the people who are sycophants and who are, you know, making somewhat mindless lemming like decisions in following people just because they're part of X group, Y group. I, I do think a lot of them actually are honest actors. They're just a bit, brainwashed and everyone wants tribalism everyone wants to feel like they have a place where they belong and that's their identity um i had one i had a phone call yesterday from someone i hadn't spoken to in a long time in the conservative movement and they're asking me about some sort of speaking event or whatever and they mentioned another person that we were mutual friends with had told them oh you shouldn't talk to lauren lauren disavowed the conservative movement right and that was kind of end of story now uh, she's talking about my whole truth video Let's say I did disavow conservatism, right? Well, was it a good or a bad thing that I did? Did I have good reasons to? I didn't in the video, but you know, let's say I did. Like the the tragic part of that conversation between those two people I used to work with was the Lauren disavowed conservatism was the end of the conversation. All you have to say about a person is they no longer have the same political ideology as me. So don't talk to them. They can't possibly have any interest, anything interesting to contribute, can't possibly have anything interesting to discuss with you, anything to add to your life. She disavowed conservatism. So cut her off. Right. That's uh, and what what is the extra layer of tragic there is I do think that they're honest actors. I actually think that people who say some of this stuff are the most honest actors because they believe in it so deeply that it's like we're at war. We can't even speak to the enemy. If someone even so much as considers the other perspective, well, then they're fighting against us. And then the whole West is going to be destroyed or, you know, lynching of gays is going to come back. Right. And they truly, truly believe that's the case, that their fellow man will turn against them to that degree. And and the reality is there are some people who are that crazy. There are Antifa members that will throw bricks at you or, you know, right wingers that do want gays to be hung or Muslims more likely. But, um, you know, that's that's not the average person who's willing to have a conversation, but people have concocted images in their mind of of their fellow citizens, ones that are mostly spurred on by media, you know, media uh, hypersensationalism and the desire for clicks and to portray whole groups of the country as having these particularly extremist views and then everyone kind of gets slotted into one or the other and if you don't pick one and start to agree with one side well you're going to be left out in alone with no team and that there's nothing worse than that right you have no one to back you up because someone's going to be attacking you online in the political world someone's going to be calling you names someone's going to be slandering you 
And if you're alone, well, you're going to have no one to back you up, no one to spread the truth about you. At least if you've got this one progressive army behind you or this one right wing army, you're going to have a group of people combating the Twitter bots, combating you uh, for you in this great battle of ideas. I don't even think it's ideas anymore. I think tragically what used to be a really interesting internet phenomenon of people just telling it as they saw it on the ground, going to protests and live streaming, having these interesting conversations has become almost entirely a clickbait farm. That's yeah. it. That's what politics has become, a clickbait farm. Well, it's, it's funny because if you take, um, and I think, I think what the internet has created is the, the fake, authentic, authentic content, right? So we're pretending to be authentic, yes. but we're really not. And so, and, and the problem is, um, if you're keen to kind of being, you know, uh, conservative or progressive, whatever, you can fall into these traps and think, oh, wow, this person is putting out, quote, authentic content. And, and I'll use someone as an example. Um, you know, Steven Crowder's, um, oh, which is his, his, um, his segments to where he sits down with people and he has these conversations. Uh, oh, Steven, um, change my mind. Yeah. I don't think those are actually as authentic as people, um, think they are. Now, I think, the two people in the conversation may, may think it's authentic, but it, it's really set where Crowder has a huge advantage um, to the people that are there. Um, and it's not entirely clear, even though I might agree with him on various issues, that he would do as well as if he was debating someone who was as prepared to yeah, have the conversation. And so it, it comes off as, hey, these are people having an authentic conversation. It's like, well, not, not really. Crowder's researched the topic for you know multiple hours, and he's mm. really trying to own the person who hasn't thought through it. It doesn't mean that Crowder's right or wrong. It just means it's not what we what we view it as. Whereas, um, we'll, we'll just reference Destiny. I disagree with him on all kinds of things, but I think a lot of his conversations that he has um, have a more authentic feel to them. Maybe maybe I'm being duped on that side as well. What do you, what's your read there? Um, no, I'd say Destiny does genuinely try to understand people. He does gen if he's in a good mood. Sometimes you'll notice he's in a bad mood and he's being extremely bad faith. But uh, there, there are these he's playing the these, piano. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There are these moments where you can see that he is like genuinely uh, curious and trying to engage with the ideas that you put forward, not just get his owns in. But I, I think he fluctuates between the two positions because, quite frankly, you know. He's successful in the political sphere, and that only really comes from getting these own videos. It's like gladiators. Everyone wants to see their gladiator win. And even if someone's providing interesting conversations, if they're losing lots, if it's perceived that they're losing lots, even if they're learning more than everyone else in the space, even if they're growing more than everyone else in the space, no one wants to back that champion, right? It's all... Um, if it's not the war of tribes and cults, it's the war of cults of personality, right? Um, so how do we take that and think about like a Lex Friedman, a Joe Rogan, who have huge podcasts bigger than, you know, than any of those other content uh, creators we talked about? Um, they are political on some level, um, but they seem to have risen above it. And I don't think that they're doing maybe what we talked about what other groups are doing, or are they? Um, I think when you're discussing topics outside of politics, you can have a lot more honesty. So when you see these uh uh, podcasts where they'll do a whole episode on some sort of historical issue or uh, yeah, archaeology or something, some sort of science issue, you can have a lot more honest, broad conversations. But as soon as you get into the political, there's so much at stake there. There's so much, you know, nefarious funding. There's so much pressure groups that exist that 
you know, there's certain topics you can't even talk about or broach and everyone in the political sphere knows them and they'll never even mention them. It'll be a whisper under their breath because God forbid they be banned from every single site imaginable. God forbid they, you know, lose their job. So when you get into the political world, the stakes are a lot higher for conversations and you can definitely tell um, people are scared. I think by the time people get to the age of 30, uh, if they're still in politics, you're kind of just owned. You've been you've been told your you learn your hard lessons when you're young. You can get away with a bit of activism. I know I did. And then there'll be a reckoning at some point, as there was for me with the Australian government and various other issues I've faced as a result of my my political activism. And you kind of learn to uh, shut up and behave or they'll ruin your life. They'll ruin your family. You'll lose your job. You'll never survive long in politics at all. They'll sander your reputation. So you, you've kind of got a whole group, certainly the old guard in politics, that have a set group of opinions, a set group of things they can say, a set group of enemies and allies. And that's not really going to change or get shaken up until, oof, I, I mean, it, it's it's really hard to say. I think there's a, a hard grasp on the media. There's a hard grasp on big tech. And uh, part of it is the political sphere is almost still entirely owned by the boomers who are just refusing to give it up. They're refusing to let the next generation, quite frankly, Gen X, who have a lot of important things to say, who have a lot of important contributions to politics. Uh, they're just not allowing them into these positions that they should be taking. Presidents used to be, you know, in their 30s, 40s. Now they're all in their 80s. It's crazy. Like the boomers just will not give up power. And they've got a set idea of this like red, blue versus each other. Whereas I think Gen X were more open to having conversations, but they've been shut out of all of these positions in politics of media. And then the millennials are just kind of left to frolic on their own and um, uh, be led along by by leash by the uh, the education system that kind of entrapped them into the same red blue ideology. So it's it's a tough spot we're in. But I'm hoping the people that currently have such a strong grasp on on our media dissemination, our schooling, our institutions will eventually let go of that power and we'll see some new faces in to hopefully shake things up. You mentioned conservatism being accused of disavowing it. Did you? No, I've never disavowed conservatism. There is a difference between disavowing the practitioners of an idea and the actual ideology itself. I was having this conversation about religion the other day where a friend was telling me, oh, Lauren, how can you be a Christian when the church has conducted the most evils on the planet, right? Like no no one has raped more kids. No one has killed more people in inquisitions. I, I don't really know if that's true. I think atheism under communism has done a heck of a lot. And so has Islam. But you know, um, I don't really believe in the idea of as Christians, I'll oh, just be completely defensive and reject the idea, right? You have to listen to other people's critiques of Christianity and understand why they find it detestable or whatever it may be so that you can unpack it and um, be self-critical. That's what Christianity asks of us anyways, humility. And when I look at it, yeah, the church have done a lot of horrible, horrible things, but anything that is good, Anything that humans truly, truly crave, and we crave things like conservatism, tradition, family. We crave things like a relationship with God more than anything. Humans deeply, deeply crave this. And because of that, people who are powerful, people who have nefarious ends that they wish to meet, people who want to control and, and contort and hurt people, they recognize this and they want to use things that are good and that humans crave to control them. And because of humans craving and desire for God, um, I, I think there are a lot of evil people that have have 
you know, used that and twisted it to control people. And that goes for conservatism as well. It's something humans like and crave. And of course, that means the powerful and nefarious are going to gravitate towards it to try to control and use humans um, using their honest desires. So there you can you can disavow how a movement or an ideology is being abused and and contorted without disavowing the ideology or idea itself it's an, it's an interesting argument there because if you look at the last 120 years the largest killer of human of humans is government by far mm-hmm. uh, uh, nazi germany uh stalin and russia and then uh the chinese communist party and so it's, it's not it's like it's it's like the largest numbers ever. Um, and yet people don't seem right or left to make that argument. Whereas you'll hear, uh, you know, religion is a great killer. It's like, okay, well, sure, there's definitely been religious wars, wars fought over religion, but the largest killer by the numbers seems to be governments. But no one walks around saying, hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. We got to get rid of government here because yeah. it's a big time killer of people. Well, that's another thing, right? People crave the feeling of security. They crave the feeling that they're being taken care of and government allegedly offers that to people. It claims, oh, we're going to save you from COVID. We're going to save you from crime. We're going to save you from X, Y, Z. Well, not really, right? You know, you didn't really do anything for COVID other than trap us in our houses for two years when it comes to crime. If you ever dealt with the police, um, I'm getting, you know, I'm still pro-cop. I'm not like BLM, take them down or whatever, but they don't really solve crime that much. If you have something stolen from your house, if someone beats you up in the street, they're going to come and take some notes and then leave. The more, whenever you engage with a police officer in a day-to-day interaction, you're more likely to find a conclusion to whatever problem you have if you're getting a ticket or if you're getting, you know, some sort of fine for having a headlight out than you will for if someone's stolen your stuff or if you've had a negative interaction. In most of those cases, it's just, well, can't do anything about it, right? So the government kind of gives this false sense of security that we really, really crave as humans. And because of that, because they're able to offer this false sense of security, you know, um, they're able to control us because that's what we desire. But yeah, it's it's like the same thing. Uh, people will only point to religion. They'll only point to uh, conservatism or white nationalism or whatever the boogeyman is that day, but never to these, these very, very obvious killers and these very obvious manipulators and um, tyrannical forces in our lives. So on that, the interaction with the cops, um, I think that the the war on drugs, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of that by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. And I think when you talk about um, when, when a, a liberal or progressive talks about the idea of racism in the U.S. and how it's implemented, I, I think conservatives do themselves an injustice by completely dismissing that. Maybe there's some word problems with how they use certain words or whatever, but, but it seems to be that it's not. I mean, it's, it's quite clear that the war on drugs disproportionately impacts certain segments of society. And whether that's overt racism or, or just happenstance, whatever it is, it, 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 it happens there. Um, why is it that conservatives struggle to maybe hear the nuance in the argument compared to just dismissing it? It feels like they're afraid to give that they're get the whole goose up if they just take a, smi- a small little uh, piece of the argument. Um, I don't really blame conservatives for this one. I think they uh, have poor communication skills at times, but the conservative brain works more on 
uh, factual data, you know, unpacking the numbers, whereas the liberal brain works more on emotion. And I don't even think this is a controversial opinion. The problem is that conservatives have kind of been taught by the conservative movement that emotion has no value in politics, which it could not be a more false statement. You know, the whole facts don't care about your feelings. Of course, feelings matter. Feelings are what motivate humans to do absolutely anything in their life. The reason you go out and work for the day is because you feel strong love for your family and you want to support them. The reason that, you know, you go and hang out with friends, do anything in life is because of the emotion it gives you. So we can look at the data, we can look at the numbers, but the numbers are only to inform better decisions to meet the ends of our feelings. And um, when it comes to the numbers, it is absolutely true that in many of these police interactions, there really isn't any statistical racism that can be measured, right? Um, if you look at like Ferguson, I remember reading a report that was saying like 90% of, uh, or 100% of police dog attacks were, were against black people. And this study was being brought up again and again, like, holy, like white cops just sicking dogs on black people. This is horrific racism. You actually look into the study, you read it. Uh, the area where the attacks happened were, 80% black to begin with. The crime is being disproportionately committed by the black population there. And there were only five dog attacks. So it's like statistically completely sure. a reasonable, you know, uh, number that, that, that would come up with. And then, um, now when it comes with, when it comes to the, the war on drugs disproportionately affecting one community, like that's a reasonable statement, right? It, it's also just a factual statement. The war on drugs disproportionately affected the black population. Now, whether that is because the black population are more likely to do drugs, whether that's because they're more likely to have interactions with cops due to, due to other crimes, all of that may as well be true, but it doesn't change the fact that people feel it's racism. Now, perhaps they're incorrect, but you still have to address and understand their feelings in order to even begin you know, hear them out and then talk to them about it, talk them through it. But th this is one thing I, I have a lot of criticisms of conservatism a lot, but this, this one, it's, it's really hard to critique them on because you can sit there and you can try to have a reasonable, honest conversation about the data with some of these people. And they'll just full on reject you, call you racist, won't even let you talk about sure. it in the first place. If you bring up crime rates in the, in the U S it's, you know, you're, you're not allowed to do that in a university classroom. You wouldn't be able to put it in your essays. A professor would never be able to talk about it. So there are things that I think conservatives can do better on, like being more sensitive to people's emotions, admitting that emotional interaction with the world matters. But then the other is the things that matter to them and do matter in relation to emotion like data uh, are, are kind of being suppressed and not allowed to be spoken about. So it's it's a tough you know, between a rock and a hard place for conservatives trying to push the culture. Right. But okay. So a couple of things there. One, uh, yeah, the, the, the data, I don't think we disagree on what the data says. Mm -hmm. So I think we're no, no, no disagreement here. Um, but two, the, what causes the data is a question. And then three, how do conservatives rank what they conservatives, conservatives is about morality. How do they rank? What is the most morally important thing to them? And how does the war on drugs uh, play into that? And so the war on drugs, to your point about cops solving crimes, well, agreed. But if you look at the budgets that cops have for drug crimes, they're all over that. Well, yeah, they're not going to solve uh, uh, maybe a, a house break-in or car break-in because, right, the budgets aren't there for that. It's to go put people in jail for drug crimes. Yeah. Um, and so those are things that yeah, So you can take the, the, the data and say, hey, here's what the numbers say. People shot, colors, dogs. Well, oh, okay, yeah, great. Now we say... Well, as conservatives, how do we rank the morality of these things and, and how is it impacting them? And so if you look at, um, you know, um, 
maybe inner city youth that are targeted by drug um, drug dealers to run the drugs. What well, puts them in the system, and then ultimately they kind of lead to a path of of criminal activity. Now, mor- morally speaking, there's a conversation about what's going on, how they get in these things, but there's a fa- a data to your point, a data uh, thing that goes, you know what? Maybe the war on drugs is actually causing more problems than it is solving. And so, um, I, I get the data point, but there's broader questions that conservatives should be asking. Uh, and, and more morality should be at the top of that. Am I, am I, am I wrong? Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm against the war on drugs myself, but what, uh, hmm, what would you say is the moral question here? Well, well first, morally, is it right to lock someone up for drugs, for possession? Mm. Right. And so, and this gets into several things. So possession, if it's illegal to possess something, um, why? Why is that? Why is that illegal? Why should it be? Why should it be wrong not to consume? Because uh, I think we could agree that consumption while driving is you know, problematic. But just to have it in your hand, morally, why is that wrong? Where, where, where are we deriving this ethic that it's wrong to hold something? Um, um, and you might you might say that there's some things that are wrong to hold, uh, but why is it wrong, wrong to hold this? So possessions is the first thing. Uh, I'll let you go to that. Well, I think this, funny enough, it actually comes back to emotion in a lot of cases. Like uh, we talk about how conservatives don't necessarily have an understanding of emotion so well as progressives do, although the problem is progressives base a lot lot of their politics off emotion rather than mixing the two things, you know, facts and emotion. But funny enough, sometimes conservatives don't really have a a full enough understanding of their own emotions, despite criticizing uh, others for basing their, their opinions and, and politics off of their feelings, you know, sometimes conservatives do as well without realizing it. And I think of my, my conservative family, uh, unfortunately my family, um, have, have struggled with drug addiction. I've had family die of uh, overdose and whatnot. And if I even would bring up weed legalization at family dinners or, you know, Christmases, sure. everyone would lose their minds. They'd look at me like, how could you, you know, that's what led to X family member dying or Y family right. member dying. Like this is something that needs to be eradicated off the face of the earth because of the horrors that we've experienced. And whether that be one person holding it that may go and share it with a friend or one person selling it, even if it's just a small amount like that still it's all these little pieces here and there that led to the death of of this person that we loved so much so i do think that there's a a strong emotional tie to the war on drugs for a lot of conservatives who have you know there's a lot of conservatives today that are very working class uh that this would have been something that they all experienced uh certainly um I'm surprised it's not more of a top topic in the black community with the crack epidemic and uh, it's it's something that I can understand why people are so emotionally attached and would want to go to war with it as much as possible. But to an extent, it's like, you know, Caligula declaring war on the sea. It, it may feel good. It may feel <laughs> like something to take your frustration out on, but it's it's not actually going to solve the inherent problem. It's not actually going to win. You're not going to win the war on drugs, right? right. So uh, for me... When I think about drugs and when I think about how conservatives should discuss it and talk about it, I think there's a reason people do drugs. There's something missing, right? No one wants to be a drug addict. No one wants to be roaming the streets on heroin. But there's something so fundamentally missing in their brain that they're not getting these receptors of 
of joy, of happiness, of meaning and fulfillment, that the only time they feel happier, the only time they feel like it's bearable to be human is when they're on drugs. And why have we gotten to a point where it is so unbearable to just exist within the human condition? And what can we possibly do to fix that so that people don't feel the need to escape to these fantasies where they overdose and die? And I think there's a lot we can discuss with that. There's the, you know, uh, the work culture, the nine to five minimum wage, the lack of community, the lack of tradition, the housing market, mass migration, uh, causing people to no longer be able to even speak the same language as, as their neighbor or feel like they belong in their own home. There, there are a lot of issues that conservatives could address before chewing out people for using escapism to get away from the hellscape, the clown world that we've created. Yeah, and, and the one one more thing I'll say on this is, I mean, I think if you're coming from a Christian worldview, um, there's sins and there's crimes, right? And so not all sin is a crime, mm. uh, and and so you'd have to you'd have to argue from a Christian worldview that uh, possessing marijuana is a is a crime from a biblical standpoint, or even smoking is a crime, and and those are arguments that I think uh, might be made, but that would be a that would that would go back to the morality of of the issue is that uh, from a Christian worldview, you would argue that it's it, that, that God cares uh, supremely about justice. And so if you're arresting someone for something that's unjust, biblically speaking, then you are actually committing a larger atrocity uh, than mm. if you were to let them roam the streets, potentially high as a kite or whatever. Uh, again, not driving. I think driving is, is, is a different thing. But you know, walking. Yeah, of course, the crisis is when someone is addicted to drugs. Um, you know, well, I can sit here and articulate, I think we need to create a better world so that people don't feel the need to go to this escapism it doesn't it doesn't change the reality that when people are on drugs they commit a lot of crime they do a lot of horrible things people assault random people you know even my family members you know steal money from family all these things to get more drugs so when they're in this different reality they act in ways that are quite frankly unacceptable and horrific towards other people it's a uh, well i can understand it it's still a, a selfish indulgence to put yourself in a mental state where you will hurt the people around you even if you aren't conscious of it mm -hmm. so you mentioned um kind of th this need for community and and kind of people's uh independence and and, and you talked about kind of maybe being slandered uh, online being in the political space i'll just watch the manti teo documentary it just came out on netflix do you remember manti teo by any chance no i don't so he Who's was that? A, yeah he was a famous college football player uh, for notre dame and one of the best players in the country and it his his uh grandmother and girlfriend died on the same night it was like the worst story Jeez. ever yeah turned out the girlfriend wasn't real he'd been catfished and this is back like a decade ago and no one knew what catfishing was. And so it was a whole huge story. Um, and if for the listeners, if you remember that, you should go watch the documentary. It just came out on Netflix. And um, But watching the documentary, uh, it was just, it was kind of like, wow, I remember all this happening. A. B, I remember what I thought through part of it. And then C, wow, I was probably too hard on the guy. Uh, mm. <laughs> I didn't have all the facts. Um, you obviously are a, a, a celebrity on some level. Um, you've had you know times where you've been accused of things, uh, rightly, maybe wrongly. Um, how do you balance that? Because I'm curious now after watching this documentary, how do we balance society making judgments? Because a lot of what people like yourself, other people might do is they're responding to things with only a fraction of the evidence. And so I know that you've pushed back at some of your critics. So how do you try to be fair? In, in your commentary today? Uh, it all comes from humility, right? 
And, and everyone talks about having humility and they want to see it in everyone else except themselves. <laughs> um, everyone needs a good ego death at some point in their life. And it's interesting. So I think, so one of the people that I mentioned in my manifesto is, is Milo and how he horribly slandered me. He probably published the worst slander about me um, compared to anyone else. And it was a really interesting phenomenon to watch what happened with Milo because he came out, um, had this massive career. Then all of the people that were supposed to be on his side uh, Reagan battalion, all these kind of right-wing super PAC types. They all came out against him. Everyone ditched him, fired from his job. No one would have him on shows anymore. And these are the people that were supposed to be his friends. And when you've been horrifically slandered, scorned, backstabbed like that, you can have two responses. One is you can have an ego death and really look inward and see, you know, where did I go wrong? Why did I get caught up in all of this? Why did I think that, you know, I was going to be on top of the world forever. And then how can I do better going forward and potentially treat other people better so that they don't feel the same way I feel right now. And then the other way you can go is the reason no one understands me. The reason they all kicked me out. The reason they all treated me this way is because they've never felt this way and they need to feel this way so that I'm not alone out here. And you can become very bitter and angry and turn against the the people that you feel scorned you rather than try to heal. And I think Milo went that way. And, and you can even see in some of his Telegram posts, you can see in uh, uh, many of the blogs he's put up where he says, my goal now is to destroy the Republican Party. My goal now is to take down Steven Crowder, to take down Dave Rubin, to take down all these people he feels scorned by. And part of that, I feel, is like a little boy kind of just wanting to feel like other people understand him. He wants other people to understand him. And he's doing that by trying to exert as much pain in them as he experienced himself. So if I slander Lauren and destroy her career, she'll be one more person that understands what it's like to be Milo Yiannopoulos. Uh, th there was a very similar theme in the movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, where the daughter is... Uh, did, have you seen that film? It's a fantastic yep. film about human relation, but basically the daughter is destroying the world she's consuming it all she's making it all confusing and the mother is so, sort of this kung fu hero fighting against her and at the end of the film you find out basically the daughter is doing all of this because she wants her mother to understand how confusing and how terrible her mind is at that moment and she just basically wants someone to feel the same way that she feels and the mom hugs her and they figure it out or whatever so i think um there is a part of it where to some extent perhaps humans do need to experience being canceled being on the outs, being backstabbed themselves before they can truly sympathize with others. But then on the other hand, you never want to do that to someone else. So it's like, how do people learn these impossible lessons? How do they become the prodigal son and, and learn not to do these things again? Right. I, I sadly, I, I don't, I, we can write books, we can write stories about these things. We can really try to educate people on, on why not to repeat these behaviors, but I really feel like humans have to experience things themselves. There's a reason we've repeated the same mistakes since the dawn of time, whether it be with war, marriage, family, relationships, murder, crime. Humans just keep making the same damn mistakes. And it's because we all have to experience it in our own lifetime. And it gives you some peace knowing, you know, yeah, I was on the outs. I was backstabbed. This and that happened to me. And now I've had my ego death and moved forward. And the, maybe it'll take longer for some people. Maybe others will never ex experience it in their life. But I feel 
um, having experienced it myself, I can think and understand all the deeper and connect with people all the more with, with their experiences and emotions. And it's a somewhat of a blessing. And I kind of hope more people have that experience and ego death so they can have a bit more depth of soul and engaging and sympathizing with others. What's the biggest mistake of your career? <sighs> Ooh. Not telling the truth right away when I came back. I was so scared. I was so scared of um, people not believing me. I was really, really just wanting to play it safe because I'd become so gun shy and timid and doubtful of myself uh, because of everything that happened. Because, of course, you look at that and you're like, well, you know, the reason you got in this position where you've been shut up by a government and all your friends are backstabbing and lying about you, you clearly must have done something wrong yourself. And clearly you can't trust your own judgment if you got yourself into that position in the first place. You can make such stupid decisions, put yourself in such a dark place. So I became very timid about my decision making. But if I could go back, I would just tell everyone the truth right away, right when I returned to politics. Or even before I left, I would have just told people about my Australia intimidation, all of it. I wish I had just been more truthful. Yeah, and you've talked on the, about the Australian thing a few times. And just uh, when were you down in Australia exactly? Oh, I was. Th this is back in uh, 2019 when I was trying to get there with my visa. Right when I left, were you down there during COVID? Though I can't remember if you were. Down I there. was during COVID. Yeah. How bad was it down there versus maybe what we saw on Twitter? Uh, it, it was. It was pretty horrific. I mean, it's it's so hard to communicate these ideas because on one hand you can tell people like, oh, I had to scan a little QR code to go to any grocery shop, to go in an Uber, to go to the dentist. They, the government had to know where I was 24-7. You can talk about the fact that if you drove over a border, you'd be put in quarantine for two weeks. You couldn't see your family. And, and you know, I lived five minutes away from, from the border of another state. So it's like you take a wrong turn and you're getting quarantined for two weeks. You can't leave your house for a year. You're completely isolated. And it, this might not sound like a big deal to people, but mentally what that does to a human being is unbelievably corrosive. I, I truly believe people were being tormented full-on tormented for two years, being kept away from their family, you know, having to die alone without their daughters or sons beside them in a hospital. That is any amount of death that would have occurred due to COVID would have been far more humane than what we were willing to do to our elderly, what we were willing to do to people, um, to torment them, to keep them away from their families, to, yeah, any amount of deaths from COVID, any of it would have been more humane than than the torture we put people through in my opinion and australia was extra bad for it and that goes back to that hierarchy of morality right so would you rather grandma die alone in isolation uh or would you rather her be able to see those who are willing to see her uh in her final days and so yeah that's uh it was a crime against humanity as far as i'm concerned and that mm -hmm. was before anybody shut down was my thought i mean it was uh, the, the whole time just gets me frustrated um okay a few final questions here before we get i want to talk about south africa real quick because uh, i've been there multiple times i got friends down there um let me tell you i have not seen your documentary um but i know you've got one on the farmers let me tell you what i was told by the people down there uh and i'm curious if this is what your documentary says or not what i was told um first off if you go to i've been to johannesburg uh multiple times and kind of the surrounding area pretoria whatnot i have not been a okay. camp so that's for context um, every house in the city is behind an eight foot tall wall with barbed wire, some kind of, some kind of covering on top. Um, and what I was told is the, the farmers, the ranchers outside the city, this has been five years ago when I first went, um, 
that they live in a rural area and they cannot afford to put up the proper protection to protect themselves. And so either they had to protect their barn, they got to protect their house, they can't, they can't protect it all. And so they're, they're being robbed from this or whatever. Uh, and that it's so bad that they have an international day where they come out and plead for the help of the international community to come help them. Um, is that close to what your documentary discovered? Not close at all. What, what did you find? Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, even if you're in the city, you're still still dealing with the constant crime. You're still dealing with um, constant horrors. But definitely when you're out alone on a farm, even just in Canada or America, it doesn't really matter. I think people take for granted that if you're out in the middle of nowhere and someone comes to murder you, you call the police, they're always just going to be the cleanup crew. They're never going to get there on time to help you. You are on your damn own, which is why Canada everywhere needs gun rights, because... I mean, you should have a right to not be murdered, <laughs> I think, right? Yeah, and think. certainly in South Africa, the type of crime is at a whole nother level because there's also this like racial vitriol that occurs, mm -hmm. this us and them mentality. And it's not just against white and black. Uh, a lot of people don't really understand the race dynamics in South Africa. You know, there's the colored people, there's all the different tribes and the black tribes are all fighting amongst each other. There's the... Uh, Bushmen, the Hottentots, all these different groups. And um, they're all constantly in this tribal war, essentially. And uh, when when white farmers in, in the middle of nowhere, Karoo, wherever, are caught off guard, they can be tortured for days, days on end, with no one coming to find them. There's actually a system that some of these farmers have implemented where they'll have WhatsApp groups where they basically check in on each other every day and wait for an, okay, yes, I'm alive, yes, I'm here, from each person every morning because you never know who's in their house having their infant's guts boiled in water having their wife raped like it's just the things that would be done to these people nail guns through the thighs for days tied up upside down being bled out uh the, the stories that i heard the things that i witnessed people showed me um it, it's it's a form of hell which is interesting because uh, I don't know. Do you, <laughs> when you go to places, do you feel like an energy or a vibe? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I mean, it's just as an aside, um, you know, when I go and I haven't traveled internationally since COVID, but when mm -hmm. I go, you know, there's definitely times I'm almost six foot. I'm 280 pounds. I'm a big guy. You know, I'm not, I'm, you know, I've, and there's times where I'm like, okay, Hey, this is not an area I like to be alone in. And sometimes you feel like mm -hmm. this is a good area. I'm okay. And so I, I just, find that the broader discussion about people being vulnerable is, is really weird. Like you travel a lot, you're going to feel vulnerable. And there's spots in South Africa where I've been <laughs> where I'm like, okay, yeah, <laughs> I'm in yeah, a bad spot right sure. now. But it, it, it's so weird to me because there's such a contrast in South Africa. It is such a spiritual country. Um, you just go in. I remember in Blomfontein, we were out just in like this desert area and we, we got out of the car in the middle of the night and just laid down on the road and looked up and and you can actually see like the colors in the sky you can see the green the pink the purple every single star it was like nothing i've ever seen before it looked like a photoshopped picture and everything in that land feels so biblical so spiritual like there's like you're genuinely feeling emotion in life as it's supposed to be felt but then the the horrors that are witnessed there are also like this biblical hell it, it's all to a next level of the human range of emotion and action that you could ever experience in south africa and it's something that i've, I've never quite been able to explain but um yeah the farmers there are in a very desperate position very desperate position they're literally faced with with 
certain death in some cases, a government that doesn't want to hear from them, that is politically oppressing them because of their race, telling them we're going to confiscate your land. They have job programs where you can't be hired if you're white. You can't get assistance if you're white. People have had to set up basically um, independent self-made camps for white people that are homeless or have lost their job because of their race. And none of it is government funded or supported. You only really get that support if you're black. So it's uh it's a wild situation too, because and any of that happening worldwide to any other racial group would get mass attention. You know, you'd have articles front page of the New York Times, you'd have organizations donating millions of dollars. Meanwhile, you have Americans that are giving millions of dollars to BLM so that they can buy new mansions in Los Angeles. Well, there are people being tortured for their race in South Africa that get ignored simply because they're white. It's a very backwards world. And um, it really reminds me of the the biblical principle of when when you give with your left hand, don't let your right hand see. Uh, because the concept of doing good and generosity and helping people has become entirely based around how your giving is perceived publicly. If you give to an organization, it's because you want to be able to post a black square on Instagram and tell your friends that you donated to the group that's popular. I donated to Ukraine because that's the current thing, right? All of our giving has become an exercise in self-masturbation and uh, ego. And uh, no one would ever advertise or want to tell people that they donated to white farmers in South Africa. Like, what are you doing? White people, they don't need help on a popular scale. They do need help, but it's just not really uh, expedient socially to tell people that. So until our giving and our understanding of goodness becomes something that is just about goodness and not about uh, a public image and perception, people like that are always going to be ignored and left on the outs. 10 years from now, what are, what do you hope people are saying about you? <laughs> it's funny you mentioned this. I wrote, I wrote a book called Henry, the sheepdog, um, particularly for my son. So it's all about a, a, a dog that gets slandered in the media and eventually uh, he's vindicated in the press. And I wrote it for my son. So hopefully he could understand if he goes and reads a bunch of ridiculous things about me in the papers that they're not always true. They're not always right. And you should get to know people as individuals and, and learn who they are by their soul, not by the things that other people who don't know them say about them. And it it certainly matters less to me what uh, people think of me 10 years from now. I always make the joke, uh, there's been a few journalists that have spread the notion that I killed a bunch of refugees in the Mediterranean with a flare gun. This is actually massively spread. There was a New York Times, or uh, I think maybe have been the New Yorker contributor that just tweeted this the other day and got 40,000 shares. That's 40,000 people who genuinely think I went out to the Mediterranean and was just blasting refugees in the water, right? And I always uh, have a laugh thinking that maybe in the history books, if the progressives really do win, I'll be some Artemisia style character dressed in all leather with flare guns. And there'll be a whole chapter about my escapades in the Mediterranean murdering people. And I think that would be pretty funny. I, I don't really care what the public think about me in, in 10 years. It could be good. It could be bad. I could be vindicated on a lot of things. There could be a lot of people who look back and say, wow, this whole mass immigration thing really hasn't worked out. We've got race wars in the streets. We've got mass disruption, uh, homelessness. It's a crisis. We didn't have time for assimilation. Wow, Lauren Southern was right. Could go the other way where the the mass psychosis goes even further down the rabbit hole and and people genuinely think I was literally the reincarnation of Hitler. That's that's less important to me. What's what's more important to me is the state of my soul and that I felt I I said the truth and, and did the right things, and made the right decisions. Uh, that's been a, a a real 
mental blessing that's come with my ego death is caring a whole lot loss a whole lot less about what the public think of me. I don't think there's been a greater gift that I could have received mentally. Okay. So last question then is seems quite quite obvious. It seems that there's a movement to say we don't care what the public says, and that allows people to act far worse than if they did care what the public says. So how hmm. do you prevent saying I don't care what the public says to then authorize you to act far worse or not, I don't want to say far worse than you have, but just, you know, uh, act maybe, um, you know, in, in a way that you're like, you know, I'm ignoring everything because I'm being true to myself. How do you prevent that? That's, that's a very, very good point. That's a very good point. Um, there's a difference between not caring what the public say because you just want to be ignorant and selfish and do what you want to do anyways, right? There are people that, uh, I, I mean, there's been like a million memes about this where people are like, ha ha, I just shit myself and the left are laughing at me and the right are laughing at laughing at me. So I must be doing something right. It's like, no, you just did something stupid and embarrassed yourself and everyone hates you because of it. Good job, bud. Right. Uh, but there's a difference between something like that, where you just assume you're inherently morally superior because everyone's criticizing you versus not caring about the criticism because you've truly put a lot of thought into the moral action that you're taking. You've truly considered all sides and you've got good mentors. You've got good people around you whose opinions you do care about. So like if my professor, if my father, if, if a close family member that I respected called me out and told me I was doing something wrong, I deeply care about what they had to say versus the hordes of lemmings that don't really know you. Uh, it, it, that's, that's what's become really difficult is there are a lot of people that the public are the only people to hold them to account, but the public don't necessarily have a good understanding of who they are. They don't actually care about their general well-being. They don't care about the direction they're going. And they don't have the individuals in their life that truly care about them to critique them and tell them what the right path is, whether it be a father, mother, spouse, um, whatever. They've just got a bunch of people pleasers all around. And then, you know, the public arena, and that's how they orient themselves morally no, what you need, you need to have a, a community and close people in your life that that truly care about where you're going, that that critique you. And you should care deeply about what their critiques are, but not necessarily about the the public orcs hooting, right? There's a, there's a big difference. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for your time today. I've enjoyed this. Where should we send people to? Website, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, where? Yeah, for sure. You can find me at Lauren underscore Southern on Twitter. Just look up my name, Lauren Southern on YouTube to find me there. I'm on Odyssey. I'm on uh, BitChute. I'm on a ton of other platforms. Uh, just look up my name. Maybe not on Google, though. They'll just take you to some <laughs> hit pieces. <laughs> Lauren Southern and news. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll pass on that one. But yeah, this is a pleasure. Really good questions. Really thoughtful questions. Okay. Well, listeners, thank you as always. And Lauren, thank you as well. We'll be back real soon. Have a good one. Okay, so what did you think of Lauren Southern's answers or thoughts? Um, have you watched her Whole Truth video? I'll link to all that in the show notes, but let me know in the newsletter. That's where you correspond with me, ryanraysenior.com slash newsletter. That is where you correspond with me to let me know your thoughts. With that being said, we'll talk to you real soon.